This episode of Access Utah was first broadcasted in March 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Michelle Anderson says, I'm what you might call a homecomer. Wendell Berry, the Kentucky writer and farmer, uses that word to describe people who have spent some time away, usually to pursue better opportunities in cities, and then choose to return to their rural roots. A recent opinion piece in the New York Times is headlined, Go Home to Your Quote-Unquote Dying Hometown. Michelle Anderson says, I did, and it isn't what I expected. I'm more involved in social and racial justice, economic development, and feminism than I ever was in the big city. Michelle Anderson is a writer, musician, and arts advocate. She is the Rural Program Director for Springboard for the Arts, an economic and community development organization for artists in Minnesota. She and her husband live in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, population 14,000. Michelle Anderson, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Uh, so I encountered your piece in the New York Times, resonated with me. I'm uh, from a small town, and uh, I, I couldn't wait to get out of uh, Vernal in eastern Utah. But, you know, uh, as the years go on, I, 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 I could see myself going back if the opportunity presented itself. Um, so it resonated with me, and I think many people in Utah have those rural uh, roots. Um, and then you sent uh, some uh, some stuff uh, yesterday. I had totally missed, I guess, the genesis of this th- this article, which <laughs> which is which is strange and weird and and uh, and very interesting. Apart, just a nutshell, and then we can expand upon this. A writer for Der Spiegel, German publication, one of their big publications, essentially fabricated uh, an article, right, about uh, about your uh, your hometown. That's right. Um, so this, and I want to read, uh, your, uh, sort of annoyed and angry, a uh, couple of paragraphs from, from a piece in the medium in medium.com, uh, in response to this, uh, quoting Michelle Anderson, I know I'm not the only rural advocate and citizen who is wary about the anthropological gaze on rural America in the wake of 2016 elections and has struggled with how or whether to respond to the sudden attention and questions when before we really didn't matter to mass media at all. Suddenly we do matter, but only because everyone wants to be the hero pundit that cracks the code of the current rural psyche. There are only two things those writers seem to have concluded or able to pitch to their editors. We are either backwards, living in the past, or we're like dumb, endearing animals that just need attention in order to keep us from eating the rest of the world alive. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that does, I mean, that resonates with me. That seems to be, you know, the hordes of of media went out after the 2016 election. It does seem to kind of fall into one of those two camps. It it really does, yeah. It's it's been an interesting um, few years, and um, I first moved back to my rural roots in 2011, so, you know, um, I didn't really see all of this coming, uh, but... and I definitely didn't see myself getting wrapped up in a international media scandal or getting to share my own homecoming story. But, mm. um, but I am finding that I'm not alone. That there are a lot of people that are um, that don't fit into the kind of monolithic narratives of rural people, and so a lot of us are just trying to work really hard to to navigate um, those those narratives and try to. Tell a more nuanced story. Uh, so, uh, this article in Der Spiegel, this particular journalist, um, you know, use that in quotes, I guess. In this in this uh, case, uh, went beyond this kind of this this forced narrative. Uh, he he actually mm-hmm. fabricated uh, facts, uh, made up quotes, made up people. Um, mm-hmm. What what do you think the the impulse was there? Getting his mind a little bit. Well, it's hard to so. Um, the story he wrote about Fergus Falls was one of um, at least a dozen that he fabricated for Der Spiegel. So it wasn't just um, it wasn't we weren't the only you know victims <laughs> of his of his lies. Um, when when it was exposed that he had fabricated uh, all these articles, um, one was about like a Syrian orphanage. Um, another was about a woman that travels around the United States to um, witness uh, death sentence executions. Um, he, he confessed and admitted that he had, been, um, he had been feeling pressured to sort of tell a certain story um, that he thought his editors wanted and that the readers of Der Spiegel wanted. So um, 
and he kind of ad- admitted that he maybe had some mental health issues. So, um, so it's hard to kind of understand, and it's it's very surreal that um, you know to wake up one day and see your little town kind of wrapped up in this in one of the biggest uh, European media scandals in history. Uh, he, I mean, he when he came here, he told some of the folks that he interviewed that he wanted um, to just learn more about a community that um, had voted mostly for Trump. And um, that's definitely, you know, that's true. Our county went about um, 60% Trump. And uh, so he he wanted to just sort of tell a classic American story. And he could have done that. He spent uh, a good four weeks here, which is really luxurious for for a journalist um, um, assignment <laughs> to mm-hmm. be able to really get in the community and get to know people. He was invited into people's homes. He attended some community events, uh, but for some reason that is really hard to understand, he chose to um, really just spend his time taking photos that would support a, a completely made-up story. He kind of combined different personalities in our community. Um, he portrayed our city administrator as uh, this young uh, virgin who had never seen the ocean that carries around a gun, um, <laughs> all of those which are not true. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he said things like our movie theater had been playing American Sniper for a good like two or three years because we were so obsessed with it, which... Um, we quickly confirmed was not true with our movie theater owner. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's just um, there. My my friend and I, um, when this article first came out, we we wanted to do something to uh, to push back on what this guy had done to our community, but we had no idea that uh, you know six months later he would get fired from Der Spiegel for uh, doing this to many, many communities. And so we just happened to kind of be in the right place at the right time with with our own rebuttal and uh, and wrote this, this kind of, um, I don't know, just kind of playful, kind of mad <laughs> uh, response. And, and it went viral. So, so it, for whatever reason, um, people just really enjoyed seeing um, two kind of everyday citizens that aren't even journalists uh, kind of fight back against these um, bigger entities. So it was, it was vindicating. <laughs> yeah, that must have, must have felt uh, felt good. Uh, and so these, you know, this, a lot of this article was fabricated and is part of, uh, yep. you know, his pattern of fabrication. He's He's been caught and uh, yeah. fired, presumably. Um, but it's interesting that it, it he's just sort of tweaking the narrative. He's taking it to 11, right? But, but the narrative is there that the, you know, the competent journalists go out on these anthropological trips. Mm -hmm. Um, and it it seems like they're looking for a narrative. You're saying that the reality of rural America is, is more complex, more nuanced. Definitely. Uh, so, I mean, I, I chose to move here to Fergus Falls when I was 29. So I'm kind of, um, I, and I, I moved here from Portland, Oregon, because in Portland I just wasn't, things just didn't feel right to me. I, I really missed my rural roots, and um, I wanted to make a bigger impact uh, than I could really feel was happening in Portland. Um, and when I moved here, I learned that I, 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 I sort of thought that I was kind of... Um, rebellious but when i when i moved here i learned that there are all kinds of people like me that are sort of looking for a different path and a deeper connection to place uh and so i actually met quite a few younger creative people in town that were um just doing really amazing thoughtful innovative uh work and thinking about just how how rural communities can thrive, um, how we can kind of think of the shifts in economy right now as an opportunity to, to explore 
um, explore new models and 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 um, and just kind of because many of these people that are returning to small towns have lived in cities, um, there's also kind of just some really uh, great conversations happening about urban rural reciprocity or solidarity. Uh, so <clears throat> it, I mean, it is of um, for you know I'm not gonna be shy about admitting that I'm a pretty diehard liberal and a feminist. And um, so there have been challenges because this community is really conservative, but those challenges have made me a better person and more um, just better at kind of trying to listen and understand and build empathy across uh, these divides that, that are so prevalent in our country right now. I wonder if you could uh, follow. I'm interested in that. Um, you you come from a, you know, you lived for quite a few years there in Portland, a liberal town, right? Yep. Uh, I guess you would you'd fit into the local color there, and then you returned to uh, uh, you go to Fergus uh, Falls. Uh, Trump vote there was about sixty percent, I think you say. Something like that. Uh, yeah, something I like it something, up. <laughs> something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. But you, but you do have conversations, do you, across the the divide? Is is are there uncomfortable conversations? How, how do those conversations happen? And I, I guess uh, my perception of a rural place is you, you maybe kind of have to have those conversations more than you you could kind of hide in an urban setting. But uh, rural, everybody maybe would know what your leanings are. Well, and you'd, you'd you'd maybe have those conversations more. I don't know. So that's a good question. I mean, I think that um, more so than having questions about kind of the national um, landscape of politics, I think that there's a really interesting experience here where you know that you don't agree um, politically with somebody, but you live in the same place, you care about its future, um, and you know, so it's it's really more about the local politics and um, just sort of getting over those differences because you have the same hopes and and fears for your community's health and it, and the children that are growing up here. Um, so we, I mean, I I would say we don't talk a lot about um, the you know the presidential elections because I think that's just it's too hard. It's um, and we're not, it's just hard to get anywhere with that conversation. But we will have, you know, pretty heated debates about, um, I don't know, the like an upcoming um, library referendum, or and and that's where um, I think just knowing that we can kind of put those bigger ideological differences aside to sort of navigate what's right in the everyday for for our local future. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of give an example, the, uh, the night of the 2016 election, there was, our, our mayor owns a um, brewery and a pizza place. And so he, he was actually running for mayor at the time. So he was one of the candidates and, um, the, the pizza place was packed with people from, I think, you know, every spectrum on the political scale. Uh, but Really, we were all there to watch the mayoral race and the city council race, and um, there was a there was a ballot measure about our library on there, and like it, I don't know, I think it's kind of fascinating that that was the the when as Trump was getting elected that that was just sort of in the background amidst all the really more immediate everyday things. Mm. So, um, but I will say that like. Um, the other piece about kind of moving here um, from Port in Portland, it was really easy to kind of find my people. So, you know, I was a musician. I worked at a music school, so all of my friends were artists and musicians that were my age. Uh, and I think the other really beautiful thing about um, moving to a small town that has just made me a better person overall is that I it's harder to find my people. And so um, here I have a much more kind of diverse pool of friends and colleagues than I ever would have had in Portland. And I, by diverse, I mean like 
um, you know, some of my best friends are in their 80s, uh, and um, some of my some of the partners that my organization works with um, are, you know, more on the conservative side of the political spectrum. And so uh, I think it just, uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to disagree <laughs> on things, but I think it just forces us to be more articulate about what we do care about. Um, and I think I'm definitely more so, um, you know, more outspoken and more... Um, courageous about saying what I think when it comes to social justice or feminism here than, uh, than I ever would have been in Portland because I just wasn't challenged to figure out why, you know, why I felt that way. <laughs> Let's uh, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to okay. uh, I want to get kind of uh, retrace our steps. Uh, you you grew up in a town of four hundred fifty. That, that's right. That's yep. Yeah, four hundred fifty. That's that's pretty small. That's um, I think that's comparable to where my mother uh, grew up, uh, Hinkley, uh, Utah, out in western Utah. Um, oh. And and then you've ended up in a larger small town, fourteen thousand. That's still uh, pretty yep. pretty pretty small. Um, so, and I want to get into talking about you quote Wendell Berry. And it's uh, yeah. always good to talk about Wendell Berry. Let's let's do that when we come back. Uh, we're talking with uh, Michelle Anderson. Uh, she says, I'm what you might call a homecomer. Uh, that's what Wendell Berry calls uh, people who uh, spend some time away, usually to pursue better opportunities in cities, then choose to return to their rural roots. Uh, her uh, recent opinion piece in the New York Times is headlined, Go Home to Your uh, Quote-Unquote Dying Hometown. More following this. This is Science by the Slice. Within the next century, Washington, D.C. could drop by half a foot, making it increasingly vulnerable to rising sea levels. USU geologist Tammy Rittenauer says the subsidence is caused by four-bulge collapse. This geological phenomenon was initiated by glacial advance and buildup of a North American ice sheet some 20,000 years ago. The shrinkage is worsened by climate change, she says, and safety measures are needed now. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. This episode of Access Utah was first broadcasted in March 2019. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. My guest for that is Michelle Anderson. She's a writer, musician, and arts advocate. She's a rural program director for Springboard for the Arts. That's an economic and community development organization for artists in Minnesota. And she and her husband live in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, population of 14,000. And I believe in that uh, New York Times uh, article, you, you said uh, you're, you're set to have a baby soon? Yes, I'm due sometime in the next two weeks. Two weeks, wow, okay. <laughs> Congratulations and good luck. Thank you. That'll be a, that'll be a whole, whole new wrinkle in your life there. That's right. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, I want to uh, treat this a little bit later, but uh, just to tease this, you, you said uh, simply panicking about the death, quote-unquote, of rural America gives those of us who care about and live in these places very little to learn or build on. Is there another way to think about it? So we'll uh, talk about that. But I want to take you back. So you grew up in, uh, what's the name of the town? 450 is the population. Um, it's a town called Dundas, and it's, it's near Northfield, which is a little more... Um, known in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell me about that. Uh, that's, that's, that's small. Yeah, it's, it's tiny. Um, it, I mean, it, it's one of those towns that's sort of adjacent to a more mid-sized community. So I went to school in Northfield and um, kind of think of both of them as my hometown. Um, Dundas uh, was, um, I, I grew up kind of watching my parents really do everything they could to take care of this, you know, really small little place that they had chosen to raise a family. So my dad was actually the mayor uh, when I was in middle school, and my mom wrote um, kind of little articles updating the larger area newspaper on whatever was happening in Dundas. So I think that's a really big part of, 
kind of why I'm so passionate about small towns is just seeing them do everything they could to to make their community better. My my dad, when he was the mayor, he um, raised money to build a pedestrian bridge that would connect the downtown to our ballpark. Um, he grew trees in our backyard and then would move them to places that were kind of more dilapidated and just kind of beautify any area that he possibly could. So I've always been really inspired uh, just by seeing those acts and kind of how just the smallest gestures of caring about a place can really um, make a long-term impact. And I suppose you can care about, a, you know, you care about an urban place. I'm sure that people in the big cities oh, yeah. care about their neighborhoods. But it, uh, I don't know, it seems like um, maybe more urgency. This is, in a rural place, there are fewer people to, to care about it. So it's everybody in the same boat promotes more community. I don't know. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing I love about small towns is that everybody wears um, several hats, and so whereas it might be somebody's job in an urban place or a city to like take care of the trees on a boulevard <laughs> or whatever, you you might not have somebody that's um, officially you know assigned to that role in a small town, and so people kind of have to watch for. Uh, what needs tending to and and what's possible uh, and i I just I love um, the fact that like um, you know, especially in those really small towns of just a few hundred people, you could have like the mayor is also like the local potter who also owns um, like the only restaurant in town or something so um, just kind of that uh, cross sector um, leadership that that is really kind of a buzz in in all of community development in both urban and rural places that really comes naturally to rural people i think so you left uh you left your hometown for 50 people uh to go to college and that you know it's a yep. uh, kind of a traditional journey uh, was there any other factor what what were your feelings there did you did you want to get out did you did, did you expect to come back after college and live there uh, it, I did not know, um, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily, um, dying to leave, but I kind of, it was one of those things that it's just this assumed, uh, path that most of my classmates were, were all leaving too. And so it just sort of felt like there weren't any other options, um, except to, to get out of there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually struggled a lot um, the first few years in Portland. I, I was very nostalgic for for my community, and um, I felt, you know, a little bit lost in, in a bigger city, but I'm glad that I did that, uh, did take that path, because um, I think it, I mean, I, living in Portland for 11 years really did shape a lot of uh, who I am and gave me experience in nonprofit arts and community organizing, um, and I think that just kind of building those skills uh, is is a gift that I could sort of bring back to a smaller place and apply um, in ways that felt more true to my to myself and um, and to the kind of places that I care about. So um, I, but if you had told me, uh, you know halfway through my time in Portland that that I would end up moving to Fergus Falls, uh, I would have balked, you know, I would have <laughs> thought, like, what what tragedy would bring me back to Fergus <laughs> Falls? Cause, right. um, and to explain a little more, Fergus Falls obviously is not my hometown, but it's where my grandma grew up, and it's um, always been kind of a second childhood home, so we would come here for summers and Christmas, uh, so I didn't have, I, it was sort of a advantage to be able to feel like I was moving back to my rural roots, but not quite to my hometown where I might have a little more, um, just kind of baggage, you know, with, <laughs> um, with having grown up in a place. So I, I feel like I, I hit kind of a sweet spot of moving to a place that I have roots in, that I that my family has kind of a history in, but that was also pretty new to me. Hmm. So. 
Uh, I think most of us, uh, you don't have to go back too far. You hit a farmer, right? So I want to talk about your uh, your grandfather, and you quote mm-hmm. from from him from his journal in in the piece. Um, but I think we maybe tend to romanticize what we think that life was. And and you uh, you say I want to quote you. You said as you decided to to leave Portland, go to Fergus Falls. I was a little naive. You said. I also felt gleefully rebellious. My move felt like sort of a protest against the idea that creative young people need to be in coastal cities. I pictured myself taking dreamy walks on the prairie or cozying, cozied up in cafes during blizzards riding. I thought I would learn gardening and canning uh, or how to clean freshly caught fish. Um, and I imagine the reality was a little different than that, was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, so I'm a writer and an artist, and so I think that um, there there was a bit of romanticizing um, about how simple life might be when I came back and that I could sort of crawl into a little, uh, you know, romantic hole of being an artist and just kind of, yeah, having this dreamy, calm life immersed in nature and maybe learning some skills from my grandparents that um, that I hadn't had a chance to learn from them. But, yeah, as soon as I got here, um, I got uh, I, I just kind of got wrapped up in a, uh, several uh, pretty urgent local issues and um, realized that, you know, the community also needs, needs energy and talent and new perspectives uh, to tackle those issues with. And so um, I just suddenly found myself um, getting... Um, added to different committees and boards and going to city council meetings and starting to starting to speak up about um, all the different issues that the community was was dealing with and so um, I've, it's actually been an interesting um, journey to find that balance because I do want that kind of calm peaceful life that a rural um, community can offer you um, so I, the last couple of years have been more intentional where I'm trying to figure out how I can stay active in the community but still still get to enjoy those things that are rural values, like just, you know, growing your own food and making things and, and everything. So um, it's uh, – and I think a lot of folks like me that have <laughs> chosen – to move to a rural place would say say the same is that they get they get kind of sucked in pretty quickly to all of the different needs that that a community has for leaders. So you quote uh, I want to get to Wendell Berry here. Of course, uh, yeah. I think audience probably knows Wendell Berry, a wonderful writer. Uh, let me just quote a couple of paragraphs from your New York Times piece. Uh, you, quoting uh, you, in 2009, uh, commencement address at Northern Kentucky University, Mr. Berry encouraged students to consider whether they might be uh, better and more responsible citizens if they embraced the concept of homecoming, rather than the desire for upward mobility, which turns them, uh, uh, which lures them to places to which they have little connection. Uh, to participate in destructive and extractive economy. even offered a glimpse of what an academic curriculum on homecoming might look like. Questions might uh, might address, and if we took the idea seriously. Uh, questions. What has happened here? Yes. What should have happened here? What is here now? What is left of the original natural endowment of this place? Um, and he goes on to offer a vision of a, quote, a vital, wakeful society of local communities elegantly adapted to local ecosystem. Did you have, you, you said when you left Portland, you did have an idea that you wanted to, to live more sustainably. And that was wrapped up in this idea of homecoming for you? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I think what I was going through was this transition into my, so, so I was 29 and, uh, what was going on was that my there there was definitely some challenges happening with my family that made me reflect on why why did I need to live fifteen hundred miles away um, and what did that mean in the larger scheme of of the of society and sustainability like the fact that so many of us are encouraged. To, to venture off to a coastal city or or um, 
and and suddenly we're split away from our families that when things start happening and in my case my sister was struggling um with um mental health issues and um I felt this pull that I needed to be back and be supportive to her and my parents but here I had you know committed to this other life in Portland and um so so I was reflecting a lot on just what it meant to spend hundreds of dollars on airline tickets only to be able to like helicopter in to lend some support for a few days and then go back to Portland and and so I really was thinking about the role of of family and um and the fact that you know not everybody is as lucky as me to have uh to have a family that is in a place with these roots um and so if I do have those roots and I do have a family that I want to um you know, support and be supported by what am I doing here 1,500 miles away? And I, I guess, like, at the time I had just started uh, graduate school in a program, um, a master's in cultural sustainability, so we were reading things like Wendell Berry and, um, and talking a lot just about um, the idea that sustainability isn't just, like, how you treat the environment, or it, but it's also... Um, just what your relationship is to the place where you live. And so suddenly things just felt <laughs> felt kind of meaningless, and I didn't really see... The world felt very uncertain, um, and I just kind of had, saw this um, kind of bleak future of feeling really separate from what matters and what can help me live a me- meaningful life and make decisions that... Um, are both good for me as a as a person, but also for the earth. So <laughs> um, I don't know. It's and I think Wendell Berry, like all of his writing, you know, really hits on that. So his um, his words in that commencement address and then some of his poetry were really resonating with me at that time as well. And um, I just sort of made this intention. Uh, to, to find a way to, to come back home. I want to return to this idea of uh, community. Wendell Berry uses uh, the, this uh, phrase, responsible citizens, and perhaps mm-hmm. we can be more responsible citizens if we, if we you know, go home. Um, and this idea of, of, of community, what, to, to you, especially living there in Fergus Falls, what, uh, what makes a good citizen, what, what makes a good community? Another thing Wendell Berry writes about in an essay um, is how we sometimes forget that we all share the same fate. And so I think there's just this awareness of, like, uh, our futures are all wrapped up in one another's. And I think if you um, are aware and considering that every day in your actions and how you treat people, um, that that in itself is is good citizenship. And so I think um, there's also a kind of generosity that I, um, that I see uh, more so in rural communities than, than I did in Portland, um, just people looking out for each other. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah. Uh, I wonder um, before we go to another break here. Um, you uh, you put your story, you connect it uh, in this piece to you what you say is a modest but persistent trend of people in their thirties mm-hmm. and forties taking up residence in small uh, communities, counterweight to high school graduates moving away. That's the story we hear, right? High school graduates they can't uh, can't make it. They 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 move away. The the uh, you know rural towns kind of in a death spiral here, but that's that's not the reality. Uh, and you quote some statistics that nationwide uh, rural areas are home to much smaller part of the American population than they once were. About half of those rural counties are gaining people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, there's you know the the common narrative of brain drain, uh, and that's where 
high school students, um, they kind of flee their rural places, they go off, um, and they kind of have to if they want an education, they're going to have to leave to go to university or college. And I think we shouldn't shouldn't fret about that, and we should um, be okay with young people needing to leave and go um, experience other places and um, interact with other types of people. Uh, but there's a um, there's a researcher here in Minnesota that has been working on um, examining the trends of what he calls brain gain, and um, that is where people, just like me, when they're starting to kind of hit adulthood and they've been able to kind of get out and experience other places, they um, start to look back to their rural roots. It might not be their hometown, but it might just like me, it might be another community of similar size. And so there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, data out there about kind of people in their early 30s choosing to move to smaller places, um, particularly to raise families or just to be able to be more involved um, in a community. So um, I think that we need to look at that whole picture and, um even people locally here in the community, I try to, there, there's a lot of worry about young people leaving. And I try to sort of remind them, like, you know, can we, what if, it, what if that was just okay? And we accept that, but we, but we also look at what can bring people back after they've had these experiences and how do we keep them connected while they're away. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about challenges. Um, uh, you write about some of the challenges uh, of uh, in Fergus Falls, um, and uh, I want to talk about roots. Not a, not all homecomers uh, have roots. You were lucky enough to have those those roots, and you say the the interstate there bisects uh, the old homestead. And you uh, you quote from a journal of your great 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 grandfather. Uh, talk about those uh, things and more following this break. Uh, before we go, um, love to hear your story if you're a homecomer. Or maybe you're a never leaver. That I guess that could be a category. Maybe you're still out in the, your your hometown. I want to hear about uh, your story. If you're a homecomer, or if you've uh, uh, stayed in Bicknell or Tabion or Fillmore, or Hinkley, one of these places uh, in Utah, you can email us to upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Lucky Slice Pizza. Handcrafted New York style pizza, available by the slice and whole pie, offering a variety of appetizers, wings, and more. Located in Ogden, Clearfield, and Logan. Information at theluckyslice.com. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. If you've ever had a child, you'll know that parenting advice can get pretty emotional. Well, actually, if you do that, there's a very good chance your baby will die, and only someone who hates their baby would do that. Wouldn't it be nice to bring some data into these conversations? I really started digging into, like, okay, well, actually, what should we do here? The data-driven guide to sane parenting. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah was first broadcasted in March 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Michelle Anderson. Uh, she is uh, a, a musician, writer, and arts advocate. She's World Program Director for Springboard for the Arts. That's an economic and community development organization in Minnesota. She and her husband live in Fergus Falls, population 14,000. Uh, she says, I'm what you might call a homecomer. It's Wendell Berry's term uh, describing people who've uh, spent some time away from their uh, rural uh, roots and uh, usually to pursue better opportunities in cities and then choose to return to those uh, rural uh, roots. Uh, before we get into your rural roots, Michelle Anderson, do you have uh, friends there in Fergus Falls, acquaintances um, who maybe have parachuted in, don't have those roots, but uh, decided to, uh, to I'm, you know, that they're going to go to a rural area? Yeah, I, um... I mean, there's a lot of, I, I think I want to acknowledge that even though my article was kind of about how um, we should look at this movement of homecomers, I do want to acknowledge that uh, people come to a community for all kinds of reasons. So we actually have a hospital here um, that brings people just, you know, for those jobs, and we have a community college. Um, 
and I think that um, what I, yeah, I definitely have friends that just kind of sort of ended up here for different reasons, whether it was a job or maybe their partner had roots here. And um, I think that's another good role for for the homecomers like me is, uh, is it can be challenging to kind of get into a community that is so tight-knit. And so I think the the people that sort of have um, one foot in and one foot out where they know what it's like to leave and come back and um, and to have connections or not, uh, I think we can kind of play that important role of being welcoming and kind of um, helping people integrate into the community and particularly uh, not really Fergus Falls, but there's some communities surrounding ours that have um, pretty significant immigrant populations. Uh, and so I think that's also, there's just kind of an interesting continuum of you have the long timers that have never left and they play a really important role. Um, you have um, potentially immigrants that have moved here for jobs. Uh, and so who are the citizens that can kind of play that role in the middle to help um, to help bridge relationships and um, kind of poke at some of the 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 um, the tight knitted the, the tight knittedness is a good thing sometimes, and then other times it can feel very exclusive and very hard to feel involved or um, invited. So um, I think some of us that consider ourselves homecomers really embrace the role of trying to work across those. Um, those lines, if, if that makes sense. Yes, uh, and that resonates. I mean, I, I experienced those conversations growing up in a small town, and uh, definitely those those conversations I know go on here in rural areas in Utah. That uh, you know, the 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 long timers uh, say, well, the people come in uh, for for the lifestyle. They come in for the the wonderful um, things that are here in, in rural parts of Utah. And uh, and then they want to set about changing those very things that <laughs> uh, that make this uh, place so so great from the point of view of the long timers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think that's some of the challenges that I that I referenced in the article. Is I mean, we're rural communities are in a place right now where we um, there's a lot to be nostalgic about and to preserve and sustain, but we also need to reimagine what's possible in our communities because what worked, um, you know, 50 years ago um, isn't going to work now. And uh, so that's been, I I will admit, that's been really challenging, um, especially since I work for an arts organization and we really like to challenge the status quo and, you know, tweak and tinker with different systems. Uh, And that can be threatening, I think, to people that, um, are just kind of used to uh, used to things being the same, <laughs> and so I think just trying to approach that from res- from a place of respect, uh, but also just not be afraid to demonstrate or model other ways. And I'm lucky to have a platform um, of a nonprofit arts organization that has. Um, that is based both in um, St. Paul and Fergus Falls, so we kind of have this um, luxury of uh, of having dual contexts of our work. Um, so, um, I guess just to say that uh, you know sometimes um, when you are the person bringing new ideas, it um, it can feel really alienating, or you can actually be you know. Um, invited for a while to different conversations and then suddenly maybe you're not, you're being left out or, um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's been a, a challenge for, for myself and for many of my, my friends that, um, have maybe not been here forever. <laughs> there, uh, I want to talk a little bit, but we talked earlier in the hour about this, but the, the stereotypes, the perceptions, you know that uh, our, yep. all rural America is Trump country, um, resistant to change, pretty monolithic. And you're, you know, you're saying, and I think on a certain level we know every town's different, right? There's some complexities. Yep. Uh, do you think those stereotypes are still 
out there and are you i don't know are the are the journalists still coming in on an anthropological uh, visits uh, is the reporting getting more nuanced do you think i i think the reporting is getting more nuanced and i think that is thanks to um rural people doing more to tell their own stories um i mean there's been a really great uh um kind of momentum around different writers, um, like Sarah Smarsh. I'm a big fan of hers. She just um, put out the book Heartland, and Art Cullen, who is a newspaper owner in rural Iowa. I think that um, just the fact that people are taking the time to tell their own stories, and I'm really thankful I had a chance to share mine. Um, We really need, if people are truly interested in the rural story, whether you live in a rural place or an urban place, I think it's so important that we seek out rural voices and um, and the writers that are on the ground um, sharing what it's really like. And I think in turn that has started to influence, um, you know, how the larger media talks about it. They they still they still definitely get it wrong though. I mean, there was an uh, op-ed in the New York Times back in I think. December that basically um, said that um, people should just leave rural places for urban jobs and and there was just no understanding of like why why we we don't want to leave we want to stay here we want to take care of where we live and make it better uh, so so yeah I mean I think it's getting better thanks to and um, like. Um, organizations like the Daily Yonder, um, they are. Big, I'm a big fan of them because they're doing really great reporting and data analysis on uh, rural life and economy. So we need all of that. Uh, there is, of course, the big sort as well. You know that the, this perception that people are moving to places where they're more comfortable politically. Um, you're saying there's a there's a mix. In Fergus Falls, and uh, I guess people are—I don't know if the word is comfortable with it—but that they're, you know, that live together, even with the differences. Well, yeah, and I think it's—I um, don't know if I've seen people deliberately moving. At least in my experience, um, I don't see people moving here because it's more comfortable necessarily. Um, and I think we just have to be careful that yes, when when an election happens, the the map of where we live turns a certain color, and I think we have to be really careful that we don't just suddenly, that's the only story, is that, um, you know, the county where I live is red and there's nothing else to talk about. Um, this this region in particular has a, um, a history of kind of back-to-the-land uh, movement, too, because we have some we're in lakes country and we're on the prairie and so there's these pockets of um of really um liberal um thinking it's just that they're the minority when it comes to the the voting trends and so um i don't know i i i i guess i like the challenge of um of being a little more uncom- uncomfortable in this particular like political climate because um, I think we can all just do better and learn more from each other that way. And um, I've had some really amazing conversations with uh, people in my community just about, um, you know, it's when you live in a, so Fergus Falls is predominantly white, um, and so it can be really hard to talk about um, racial justice when there's not a lot of experience with non-white people. And so um, those conversations are really interesting because I think people want to do better and understand more. Um, and I'm, I'm also really, really interested in just kind of how we raise kids in a community like this because chances are they are going to go away and go to cities where there's where they're surrounded by people that are not just like them. And so how do we raise them in this place, um, but, you know, to be good citizens in a multicultural world? Um, so, 
yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's it's a journey. <laughs> yeah, definitely a journey. Yeah, uh, I want to. Uh, we just have about uh, two minutes left, and I want to uh, not neglect your roots. You you truly are a homecomer. Um, so you talk about your great 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 grandfather Walter Cook. I'm looking at a picture of him here. Um, yeah. Right, uh, sitting upright in his, his chair, distinguished-looking gentleman. Uh, he's a farmer. In fact, you say the interstate, interstate what, I-84, is it? Uh, uh, um, 94. 90, yeah. 94. Um, intersects the old homestead. Uh, tell me just a minute about uh, Walter Cook. Yeah, he, he came from England um, and spent a little bit of time in Canada, brought most of his family. Um, he... <laughs> Um, sailed across Lake Huron with some friends looking for work in the U.S., and he actually almost drowned on his way. Um, they capsized in the middle of the lake, and he saved his his life. And then he somehow ended up here. Um, so it's he the homestead is about 40 miles north of where I live now. Um, and it wasn't just his homestead, but um, other sides of my family, it, the the interstate actually goes through three of our homesteads. Um, so I think about that a lot, just um, how they, you know, they were f- pretty much forced by the government to, um, to give up huge chunks of their land. And so, and now here every day I drive through that and it's really, um, it's hard not to think about, um, you know, how that felt for them to, to have their land split up like that. Yeah, that's and that's uh, that's the heritage that you come back to. Does that? I imagine that must affect you uh, now, living back, uh, you know, near the old homestead. Yeah, and um, what what I'm excited about is, I mean, there's it's hard because there's not really anybody. There's only a couple of my cousins um, in my generation that have continued the farming tradition. It's just really hard uh, now. Uh, but one thing I'm excited about is that um, my grandpa on the other side of my family, we, um, we've been working with the DNR to convert his farmland into native prairie. And um, I just think that's really also just symbolic about kind of reimagining rural. And so last spring was the first time that we've been able to see um, all of the native flowers and plants um, kind of come to life after, you know, over a hundred years of, of farming. So, um, I think just sort of embracing those, the transition that we're in, um, feels really exciting to me and, um, and who knows what's next, but, um, I think we just have to keep, keep tinkering with, um, different possibilities and, and see these transitions as opportunities. Well, good luck with all all of those th- things. It's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Michelle Anderson is a writer, musician, and arts advocate. She's a rural program director for Springboard uh, for the Arts there in Minnesota. She and her husband live in uh, Fergus Falls, uh, population 14,000. Uh, and you can uh, find her uh, recent op-ed piece, uh, Go Home to Your Quote-Unquote Dying Hometown, in the New York Times. Uh, Michelle Anderson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.